Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Kosicki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. My guest today is Jadwiga Biskupska, who is Assistant Professor of History at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, and co-director of the Second World War Research Group for North America. She received her PhD in history from Yale University, and today we'll be talking about her wonderful first book, Survive. Warsaw Under Nazi Occupation, which was just published, so 2022 stamp, with Cambridge University Press in their studies in the social and cultural history of modern warfare series. Uh, Welcome to the program, Professor Biskupska. It's so good to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I am going to jump right into the first question. I always ask to start out, uh, what brought you to this topic? Well, I, I have to confess that this this has the same original sin of a lot of first books in that it began as a dissertation. In my defense, it's a lot different than the dissertation. Um, it took a, a complex sort of trajectory. It, it started as a project at, at Yale in which I was trying to figure out what Nazi Germany was doing in Poland, doing vis-a-vis the Polish intelligentsia in the opening years of the war. And um, I realized as I was revising it that that was the frame of the story, but the heart of the story was really about what the Poles did in response. And particularly with the Warsaw intelligentsia, where the occupation and occupation violence was so intensely concentrated, what they did in response and how effective that was. So the book became a project that that portrayed and then analyzed um, Polish response to Nazi German occupation. And that's that's what it's emerged out of is after this, this circuitous uh, trajectory of, of revision, which I think taught me a lot about how to write and not write a book and also about who the Polish intelligentsia are. Um, well, at least who the Polish intelligentsia were. If you'll permit the naive question, the door you just opened, who were they? Right. So that's um, that's the first sort of intellectual project the book had to tackle because as I was as I was doing the research for this book, I was using uh, categories that that Nazi Germany was imposing. The German the German phrase here is, is a direct translation, intelligence. And I realized just as, as as scholars of the Holocaust have to deal with these categories, is what do you do when you're using a perpetrator category? framing. And so one of the first tasks of the book was explaining that there was actually a lot of overlap in how Nazi Germany and its elites, uh, military personnel, uh, Wehrmacht officers, particularly the SS, which had such a strong presence in occupied Warsaw, and then Polish elites themselves, they had a kind of a common understanding of what Poland was um, and how it was run in their common history of uh, the Polish intelligentsia. Um, and by that, I mean that the Germans, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, obviously after 1933, looked eastward towards their Polish neighbor and they saw particular things. 
Um, and in particular, they focused on a long history of insurrection, of uprisings. And the conventional way to look at that was that a group of people more or less coherent had driven those projects um, and had, in fact, driven the Polish national project. There's no Polish state um, from the end of the 18th century. So what there is 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 a national community and its avant-garde is this group, the intelligentsia. Um, they're educated, though not necessarily formally, but what they are crucially is self-conscious Poles who see themselves as, as perpetuating, sustaining, articulating, and those are often the same things, a national project in East Central Europe in the Polish language. And I will note here that this is a political designation, but it's not party politics in, in the narrow sense. And in the period I talk about in my book of, of a Nazi German occupation, it spans from the far left to the far right. So people who identify with, with many with many parties. Um, but what their real task is, as they define it, is to sustain a Polish nation, right? And then to enfranchise others into that project. Um, uh, and they have among their members... Um, members of, of what had been the Polish nobility, the, the Schlachta, but they don't necessarily belong to that social group and they're not necessarily wealthy um, or economically privileged in any way. They're, what, what defines them, what defines the, the Polish intelligentsia is this sense of national mission. Even if, as I try to explain at length in the book, there is not consensus on exactly how that should be sustained, what it should look like uh, as a sovereign state and, and what the priorities are. So this, this group, the intelligentsia, is the, is the people who hold this national mission. I think one of the things I admire most about your book is that you actually develop a pretty effective ecology of the intelligentsia, which also treats them as a category that isn't really static. Uh, and that's something that I... I, mean, I, I like you actually found some English language translations of Polish language works that I didn't realize existed in English. Go Petalang, <laughs> uh, like uh, Janowski and, uh, and and Michinska and some of the great work on 19th century origins of the category. But I, I'm curious, you know, the 19th century, Mickiewicz, uh, Domowski, obviously, and continuing onward, and you talk a lot of, for, for obvious reasons about Domowski and Piłsudski early on in the background to the book. But really, the book makes it seem ultimately, I'm curious if you think this is fair or not, like the the the, the story of the intelligentsia and occupied Warsaw fundamentally is a story of uh, the Second Polish Republic and the the killing or the uh, well whatever 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 noun we want to use the end of the Second Polish Republic because it was the incarnation in so many ways of the intelligentsia whatever we want to say about the wide uh, the wider demographics of the Second World War in Poland and a lot has been said obviously is that fair. Yeah, I, I think that that is fair. Uh, but I was dealing in, in in the book with the difficulty that, well, you know, I don't know exactly what my, my audience will be, but the assumption was they didn't know the history of the Polish Second Republic in, in detail, which is not especially well known in the English speaking world. So what I would say in terms of, of the group of people I'm trying to tackle under Nazi occupation is that they are a group of people who share this collective trauma as the leadership of a post-sovereign state. 
um, and that state is obviously the Polish Second Republic. Um, and though it it changes quite a bit depending on on the year they were born, their generation, which I, I go into a bit in the book, how old they are, um, what their sort of framing experience is. And for very, very young people, their behavior in the occupation is determined by the fact that they took more than their parents were ever able to, Polish independence for granted. So they were born into a sovereign Poland. And for some of my my early characters, like the mayor of, of Warsaw, Stefan Starzynski, is he is by definition not born into a sovereign Poland. So he has a very deep memory of, of pre-independence Polish society. But yes, that sort of collapse of that state um, and the collapse of, of the intelligentsia role in it is the, the sort of the jumping off point of, of the story I tell in the book. Do you find that that makes it easier or harder, let's say, for uh, scholars and students of other fields of history to find themselves in your story? I'll give you one example. Uh, I remember an article by Yedvitsky, whom I, I know you, you reference among others, uh, in various points in the book, trying to make a comparison between the French category of intellectuel, which is basically just intellectuals, but something that's pegged to the Dreyfus Affair. Well, the Dreyfus Affair was about many things, but it wasn't about sovereignty in the way that the intelligentsia was in uh, modern Polish history. And I've heard the same comparison, right? I mean, an intelligent makes sense in the Russian imperial context uh, from the imperial center and doesn't need to be about trying to recoup sovereignty. Do you um, do you think that this translates, or is it something? Because you like the word intelligentsia, I like it too. I'm just curious for folks who know a lot of modern European history: uh, is there a way that it can uh, move through different subfields, or not really? So yes and no. Um... Uh, Polish history has its distinctive elements, but Poland is obviously in, enmeshed in European history in, in complex ways that means that, that mean that things that happen in Poland have parallels elsewhere. I deliberately didn't want to over-translate um, in this book and take a term that has a specific meaning in Polish um, and just give an approximate equivalent in English because I thought the specificity really mattered. So the obvious term in English would, I think, not be intellectual, which is going to push this into in, only one slice of the intelligentsia, but elite. And in one version of the manuscript, I used that heavily as a translation. And one of the readers said, you know, that has a negative connotation. And I but uh, that's fine. And that's that certainly I didn't want the negative connotation. So I increasingly began thinking about using the term itself. And one of the, the decisions I made was that I translated a lot of terms in, in Polish and a lot of phrasing because I wanted um, this to receive an audience that doesn't necessarily take the details of Polish modern history for granted. Um, and also because if you read, as you've read in, you know, uh, English language history of France or English language history of Germany, there's a supposition that that language is is normal. It's part of the Western conversation. And therefore, phrases in French, I think the literature on Nazi Germany, the word Führer is rarely translated, right? Because it is, it is part of understanding that society to understand its terms. And I think that Poland should also be understood in those terms. And therefore, uh, words like wapanka and intelligentsia, at the very least, should be part of the story. And a reader who's trying to come to grips with this state, with this nation, should be expected to be able to absorb those. And I think that 
Eastern Europeanists should not therefore over-translate when they're, when they're trying to get a point across. Because one of the points of this book is to try to wrangle with what it means for state, for society, for people under occupation to be led by a group such as this. I couldn't agree more. I'm curious if you uh, feel like the logic would be the same if Warsaw, I mean, obviously Warsaw is the center of your book. And in some sense, is that why? Did Warsaw have to be the center of your book? Everyone knows about the Warsaw Uprising, even they don't necessarily know, uh, maybe can't distinguish between the Warsaw Uprising and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but the phrase uh, exists or resonates somehow. Um, Could you have written a book about wartime intelligentsia and not made it all about Warsaw? Maybe. Um, it would have been even harder to organize. And this book was hard to organize because what the limits are of this group is 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 subjective. Um, and I wanted a book that was that was people focused, um, in which there were there were characters and the agency of those those characters mattered. And therefore I had to to wrangle somewhat the the cast of characters. And perhaps there's too many. Um, at times there were too few. Uh, and at early versions of the manuscript, there were far too many characters. So um, if I had attempted to write a, a book on on the Polish intelligentsia more broadly and included, you know, Kraków included Western Poland, included, included the East. I mean, do you include Lwów? Um, yes, uh, I think um, that would have made things vastly more complicated. Um, and in fact, would have demanded that there not be a single story, but multiple stories. And I think many scholars of modern Poland or even just narrowly of, of the Nazi German occupation run into this, this trouble because there are multiple stories, because Nazi Germany is not trying to do one thing in what had been the Polish Second Republic, but multiple things. And the Soviet Union in Eastern Polish territory is trying to do multiple things. So to take that seriously, you have to divide the narrative. Um, And there's value to doing that, but I think it it sometimes distracts from the specificity of what's going on in particular places. And for many reasons, what happened in Warsaw was particularly intense. Um, And the concentration of Nazi German personnel there, police especially, but also uh, civilian administrators and uh, military personnel, was very, very intense, which meant that I thought this was a space in which you had a particularly intense and intimate interaction between Nazi German projects and, and the Polish intelligentsia that was not true to the same degree elsewhere. Um, and I, I tried to explain this to several people as this project was developing. I think the Polish Second Republic as a container, as a political experiment is very, very interesting. Um, and I try to make that clear in the book, but the Polish Second Republic or the Polish people, an even broader subject, is not the subject of my book. It's the Warsaw Intelligentsia. Um, and it, this would have been a very different book if I'd had elites from from Białystok, from from Poznań, or elites who retire to or or make make their living in the countryside, which is a, a separate story entirely. So uh, why don't we talk about a couple of specific figures? Uh, Jan Karski has enjoyed quite a renaissance in recent years uh, in, if I can put it this way, popular culture as well, right? The play, new play about him. Uh, likewise, uh, there are some figures in your book who are probably going to be less familiar, certainly outside the field of Polish history, but maybe even within, like Aleksander Kamiński uh, and the Szare Szeregi, right? The great ranks or the the 
massively important scout movement within the larger intelligentsia and resistance phenomena you explore. If you had to maybe, I know you were just saying you had far too many folks early on, far too many protagonists, but if we just take maybe those two, maybe add Zofia Kosak, right, the founder of Zagota, does focusing in on a handful of protagonists help you drive the story as you look from 1939 to 1944-45, or does it make it harder? In other words, can you actually follow certain individuals all the way through? Or let's say, since I'm recommending your book to everyone listening here, uh, please buy the book. When they're reading your book, would you recommend that they try to keep track of the protagonists or just take them as they come? I suppose that would depend on what one is reading the book for. Um, My preference would be a bit to sort of take them um, as they come, though I certainly wouldn't wouldn't be against someone reading the book to sort of follow a biography. The difficulty, of course, is that um, the premise is that Warsaw is very badly destroyed um, physically and, and in human terms during the war. And one of the arguments I try to make is that I'm talking about a space and I'm talking about people who live in that space, but I'm also talking about a community. Um, and in a sense, it's not an accident that the figures I'm talking about end up in Warsaw. They have, in a very powerful sense, opted in. Um, they've either deliberately come to Warsaw, like Kaminsky does, um, though he has connections there before the war, or they've chosen to stay and they've chosen to act qua Varsovians during, during the war. Um, so, so Warsaw is the container, but some people like Karski being the obvious, the obvious character is, I think that he's a, he's an important part of the Warsaw story because he's doing things for this Warsaw community on their behalf. He joins them though. He, though he grows up in, in Wuj, um, but he leaves, right? He's, he's a courier. So, so he physically departs the space I'm talking about and other people physically enter it. Um, so I don't follow them wherever they go. I, explain their their focus and their their attention to the city of Warsaw because one of the things I try to indicate is I'm not just happening to study this this space and it doesn't happen to be the Polish political and national capital it's a place that's deliberately targeted in certain ways by Nazi Germany and it's a place that Poles invest with a specific meaning related to their own political traditions so those who who have a mind for resistance if we if we want to say that think that that's the place they should go um, and those who choose to stay understand that that's a part of that that choice. So yes, it's a space. Yes, it's a city, but it's also, it has a particular meaning that's, that's beyond that in terms of what happens there. So uh, in that vein, I'd like to ask you about the title of the book, Survivors. Uh, my first association, I confess, uh, was Holocaust historiography, but maybe that's intentional. I'm curious the extent to which, because obviously I'm assuming that the what binds all these protagonists together, whether they die or not, uh, is of course the project of the survival of the intelligentsia and what it stood for and what it had tried to achieve in the Second Republic. But then there are the broader aims that you were just articulating. I want to make sure I'm not reading into it. So maybe for our listeners' benefit, you can just tell us sort of in a nutshell what survived 
Yeah, so that's that's a good question. I, the aim here was not a, a an attempt to place Polish national suffering or Polish Christian or Polish Gentile suffering in competition with Polish Jewish suffering at all. Um, the basic idea was simply that I'm positing that the Nazi occupation of Warsaw was the sort of thing that needed to be survived. Um, and for this group of people in particular, survival is not to be taken for granted. It's it's it requires action. It requires it requires agency. And in fact, a number of the characters in the book do not survive, um, uh, and therefore, therefore, that that process is one that I'm that I'm highlighting. Um, the space, the city itself, is in many ways attacked. It's an object of destruction. The ghetto space is comprehensively targeted, and then in the downtown uh, as a whole uh, after the Warsaw Uprising of 1944. So that space is is targeted. But within it, um, in in the book, I talk about Polish Jewish suffering and and anti-Semitic persecution in the developing Holocaust as not only a chapter in the story of Warsaw's occupation, but a series of events with which the non-Jewish intelligentsia had to wrangle, that they had to understand what was what was going on there. Um, so yes, a survival is, is something I think we associate with, with the Holocaust. We also associate with all sorts of traumatic events in, in general. I think in Eastern Europe, the Holocaust would be the first uh, association. And indeed, some members of the Polish Jewish intelligentsia um, had to survive the Holocaust, though very, very few did. Um, but the occupation as a series of events, as a series of unfolding persecutions and, and Polish response to them was something that needed to be survived. And that's, that's I think, one of the central things I assert. Yeah, I, I found that, I mean, first of all, I should say also that, that I really enjoyed the way that you structured your chapters. I, I, I got what you were just saying in terms of what I thought was a really elegant balancing act between kind of forensic deep dives on the one hand, which for me, you sort of have more this social scientific, let's get into the mechanics of insurgency and warfare survival, like you were just saying. And on the other hand, good, readable narrative history. Uh, what I wanted to ask is, of course, you know, let, let's complicate things. So to dig a little deeper in terms of what you said a moment ago about Polish Jewish intelligentsia, uh, separate story, obviously entangled at a minimum with the, the story of non-Jews. I, I, I think at different points in your book, I had a slightly different feelings on this score. I'm just curious how you would frame it overall, um, you know, for our, our, our listeners' sake. To what extent was this one holistic entangled story of an intelligentsia that included both Catholics and Jews? I mean, could be non-Catholics, non-Jews as well, but mostly uh, Catholics and Jews. And to what extent really is it a matter, let's say, for example, the chapter on the ghetto you referenced of Catholics looking in on what was happening to the Jews? So the answer to that question depends on whose perspective you you privilege, because of course, precisely the intelligentsia is, is not a monolith. And let's say, you know, midsummer in 1939, there are multiple phenomena, there are multiple things in existence in the city of Warsaw. There's a self-conscious Polish intelligentsia, there's a self-conscious Jewish intelligentsia, and there's also a Polish Jewish intelligentsia between them. And then there are portions of the Polish intelligentsia who happen to be Jewish, but who identify primarily as members of the Polish intelligentsia. Let's say they happen to be Jewish by, by Hitler's definition. 
right? Um, rather than necessarily by their own. And one of the many things the occupation does, perhaps the most important thing it does, though it depends on the timescale, is that it fractures those separate things and it forces them together and it forces them apart. So most of the characters in my book are ethnically Polish, right? Um, Most of them are Catholic, though that says nothing about their their devotion or their religiosity. Um, Some of them are, are secular. A handful of them are Jewish, and I'll say here, by Hitler's definition, though they identify as, as Polish, like Julian Kulski, the acting mayor. Um, and others are um, uh, Polish Jews who identify increasingly as, as Jews, both because of their decisions they make and because of the decisions forced upon them by both the Nazi occupation and by Poles, like Adam Chernyakov, the chairman of, of the Judenrat. Um, I would say that in, in the summer of 1939, he's a member of the Polish Jewish intelligentsia, and he's a member of the Polish intelligentsia, and he's a member of the Jewish intelligentsia in Warsaw. But very clearly, by 1940, he's a member of the Jewish intelligentsia, but not a member of the Polish intelligentsia. Well, how does that happen? Well, it happens as a result of Polish response to Nazi occupation, Polish Jewish response to to Nazi occupation, and then the physical creation of the ghetto, the forcible segregation. But there are figures in this story that push against that precisely by their by their own agency. We have a figure like Julian Kulski, the, the acting mayor, who darts in and out of the narrative, um, even though in actual fact he, he doesn't have much substantive political agency. Um, he is just as much Jewish by, by Hitler's definitions um, as, as Adam Chernyakov, who is in many ways his parallel within the ghetto, but that's not primarily how he, he considers himself and it's therefore not how he behaves. And it's not actually how his fellows identify him. Um, so there's there's a lot more play in that system than than Nazi ideology, Nazi racial ideology would would posit. And then there's there's other people in this story who are uh, Polish Gentiles or Polish Christians who are philo-Semitic, and that reaction to and um, uh, a challenge of of the Holocaust of the developing Holocaust animates them. It drives their behavior. And then there's there's uh, protagonists in, in the book who are probably the majority um, who encounter the Holocaust, who are certainly aware of developing anti-Semitic persecution and the murder of Polish Jews, but for whom that's a side issue as they increasingly focus on the threat to, to the Polish nation, to them and the project they're leading, and that separates out of their lives. So in many ways, this complex intelligentsia tradition in Poland and of Poles bifurcates and separates during the war in a way that, that I think becomes therefore permanent by 1944. Yeah, the way you just explained it, I think, is also very uh, well illustrated within the book itself. I want to dig in a little bit deeper to the Catholic Church, uh, just to to try to oversimplify, perhaps not really, but <laughs> taking all the nuance you just laid out beautifully and maybe mm, oversimplifying for just a second, because I want to talk about the difference between the church hierarchy and the laity, which I think you uh, do very, very well in the chapter on uh, Catholicism in your book. And uh, there's an anecdote that I thought might be worth discussing for a second in terms of its significance, uh, how the uh, acting bishop uh, Szagowski was given an urn with uh, Frederick Chopin's heart uh, <laughs> in the context 
of the uh, Warsaw Uprising. I'm curious if you feel like there's a significance to that in terms of the church's position. We'll talk more about Catholicism in a second, but it feels like if we're talking about survival on the one hand, it's good that Chopin's heart wasn't destroyed. On the other, it's interesting to see the Nazi leadership handed over to the Polish bishop. What do you make of that? So this is a really interesting moment. And I remember I had several people who were reading this manuscript as it was in, in progress. And those who knew Polish history had been trained in it were like, oh, yes, of course. Um, and others who came from you know Western European history and think uh, they, all of them flagged this and there were comments like, what? Um, which is a perfectly good good question. So I had to actually expand out this this anecdote because it's incomprehensible if you if you summarize it. What is this thing that that happens? Um, so the acting leader of, of the Roman Catholic Church in Warsaw, Szlogowski, is is, is um, leaving the city because of the impending uprising, and he's handed by the Nazi administration this sort of. <laughs> He's handed a physical object, which is which is Friedrich Chopin's um, posthumously extracted heart, um, which had had pride of place, a kind of a, a reliquary um, in one of Warsaw's main churches on the main thoroughfare in Krakowska Przedmieście, where it has in fact been been returned after the reconstruction of that that church uh, after the war. And you can you can see it today. You can light a small candle uh, uh, in front of, of Chopin's heart. Now, why? Well, it's a symbolic indication. It's a kind of a gesture of goodwill from the elite of the Nazi administration to the elite of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you could read this this moment in a lot of ways. One read is that the elites are entangled um, and the, the Catholic Church is completely in bed with the Nazi administration. And here's this odd gesture of goodwill here is that all the elites at some point come together at the very top of their hierarchies. Um, I think that's a misread on what happens because the archbishop is, is completely um, he's flustered by this. It's, it's awkward. It's, it's bizarre. It's, it's a gesture from someone he doesn't know well and from someone he doesn't like. Um, so I read this in a different way. I read this, that these elites are, they do sort of bow to one another during the occupation. They are in communication, even if those, that communication is formal and stiff and threatening. Um, but that there is a possibility, there is a door ajar there between the leadership of the Catholic Church and the leadership of the Nazi German civilian administration, such that the princes of the church, shall we say, have access to the elite of the, the Nazi occupation that normal polls, that the rest of the intelligentsia does not. And at times that matters, right? At times that seems to protect a Polish Catholic lady. At times it seems to protect some, some priests and religious. Um, but at other times it seems to get them in trouble. Um, and therefore, I, I emphasize when talking about Catholicism that, yes, the Roman Catholic Church is a deeply, a fundamentally hierarchical institution. Um, the Nazi occupation administration is also hierarchical in, in its own way, though it's certainly much younger uh, as an institution. But that when we talk about Catholic resistors um, and those who are using the Catholic faith um, uh, in their um, uh, in their resistance to Nazi occupation, um, we're not talking about a hierarchical response, right? This is not led by the Pope, but this is not led by the bishops. It's, it's not 
precisely a bottom up movement because we're talking about we're talking about the intelligentsia, but it's a kind of a a level below the top up and down movement. If that's that's a terrible way to say it, but but I, I wanted to emphasize that that we should not understand what happens to Catholics and what ha- uh, happens to the Catholic Church in Warsaw is something directed by the leadership. Yeah, it, it's interesting to consider. I think also, I mean, the the reason, the way that this anecdote even became, or the story, the scene even became possible, is that of course the head bishop of Warsaw, and now you tell the story wonderfully in the book, uh, wasn't in Warsaw. He left Poland at the start of the war, and uh, so that prince of the church wasn't the main church prince in Poland, unlike, let's say, in occupied France, or unlike in collaborationist Slovakia, uh, the head of the the Polish Catholic Church was a cephalus in some ways. Kraków had a literal prince who was the archbishop, and that was great for Kraków. But Warsaw had a vacuum at the top of this massively significant public institution. and I wonder, I mean, in some sense, you answered part of the question I was going to pose already in terms of their, the hierarchy not having a decisive role. But if you were talking across, let's say, uh, different fields in European history, even beyond European history, do you think that the absence of the actual official leader of the uh, religious life in Warsaw who had escaped to France and ultimately he was imprisoned himself at the time of the Warsaw Uprising, did that really lend itself to more activism on the part of laity, of non-clergy, sort of taking upon themselves the future of what they saw as their religious community? So yes and no, um, and I think I think the answer is mostly yes because of who I'm focusing on because we're talking about the intelligentsia. Um, now Catholicism has has many facets as you as you know well. Um, it's hierarchical. One of the things it emphasizes is, is is obedience in certain ways, obedience to the teachings and traditions of of the church. But the group of people I'm I'm considering this intelligentsia is a group of people who are really not obedient to all sorts of structures. So though many of them are devout Catholics, and, and Karski, Kozielewski Karski is without question a, a devout Catholic. Zofia Kosak is a devout Catholic, right? That doesn't always mean exactly the same behavior, right? Um, it means like like all human beings, like all Catholics, they pick and choose which teachings of the church to, to prioritize. Um, but Catholicism is very important, and they they um, offer what I believe I refer to in the book as a kind of a posture of creative obedience to the teachings of the church, which without question inspire a number of these these movements. Like Unia is is obvious, right? This is a Catholic initiative, and I think the absence of the cardinal. Uh, Augustine Hund matters in that there is more space for that creative obedience, and that obedience can be more creative precisely because um, someone like Hund, who who ruled with a heavy hand intellectually, was not there to try to rein them in. Uh, but I don't want to say somehow that um, I don't want to use that 
overly much as an explanation. Um, uh, there are uh, priests who are extremely important in resistance behavior, uh, and they range, they tend to be on, on the right of the political spectrum, um, uh, fans adherents of the of the Andetsia. Um, so there are definitely priests directing the behavior of Catholic laity, but there are also Catholic lay figures and, and lay women, like Zofia Cossack is, is the one I feature in the book, um, who are not looking to the hierarchy of the church to tell her how to behave. She is very confident that she can interpret that herself and in some ways that she can interpret Catholic theology and what she's going to do from day to day, um, uh, cardinal present or cardinal not present. Um, I don't think she lacks any sense of confidence about how she's going to be Catholic or how she's going to be Polish in the world. I'm going to actually circle back now, since you brought up Zofia Kosak, to the question of Jewish-Gentile relations. Uh, Obviously, the Holocaust was playing out in parallel with and entangled with the story that you're telling. And Cossack's story is an interesting example, right? We've got uh, a movement, and, and, and there's been a fair amount of debate about her specifically in recent years, uh, the uh, anti-Semite, philo-Semite who led a rescue movement. And I think it does depend on some level whom you ask, how they would classify her. It has to do also with the independence and the confidence that you were describing a minute ago, where on some level, she probably just didn't care that much. She was going to do what her understanding of Catholic social teaching and Catholic social ethics dictated. But that being said, uh, she tends to be grouped by... uh, uh, some historians, I mean, most prominently, my PhD advisor, Jan Gross, as an anti-Semite in the context of uh, the resistance, uh, even as she was saving Jewish children. Is this, some, is this a contradiction in the context of uh, occupied Warsaw or not really? Uh, it might be a contradiction, but I think it depends on how you, you define your terms. Um, and I think one of one of the great gifts of the past 10 years is both that there's been a flowering of historiography on the Holocaust in Poland, uh, led by the Polish Holocaust School, and that we have better understandings of Nazi empire and, and Poland's place within it. And so the first thing I'd say is anti-Semitism is, is common as dirt in, in Warsaw. And it's it's part of Polish history. It's part of the history of, of the Polish Second Republic. And so for Polish Jews, for, for Warsaw's Jewish community, um, the transition to Nazi occupation and experiencing Nazi anti-Semitism um, has profound changes and it becomes murderous, it becomes genocidal, but it's not entirely new. There's, there is continuity in the sense of being singled out, marginalized uh, and persecuted. So I think what's really important in the Polish space um, is to understand that there are different kinds of anti-Semitism. And that's 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 essential. And that anti-Semitism changes enormously for Polish anti-Semites during the period of occupation as witnesses to bystanders to participants in uh, sometimes victims of uh, accidentally or deliberately of of the Holocaust. So so Polish anti-Semitism, like so many things about Poland during the Second World War, is not in any way static. And I think if you read Cossack's writings, whether the ones she signed with with the pseudonym or that were part of her her FOP, right, Front Odrodzenia Polskie. 
she is is not in any way trying to hide anti-Semitism. She doesn't consider it to be uh, incompatible with her her nationalism. She would say her patriotism, or with her religiosity. And what she's doing, and, and I, I detail this a little bit in the book, is she's treading a fine line um, that uh, Catholic theology and and the popes have clearly. Um, required a rejection of what we would call racism or biological racism. So Nazi permutations of anti-Semitism don't particularly tempt her, and she rejects those on religious grounds. But cultural interpretations of anti-Semitism, even the interpretation of, of uh, Polish Jews as inherently separate from the Polish nation, not only tempts her, she absolutely embraces it. She articulates it even during even during the liquidation of, of the Warsaw Ghetto when um, Nazi anti-Semitism turns absolutely murderous for Warsaw's Jewish community. She recognizes uniquely and very early among, among Poles that what's happening to the Jews is qualitatively and quantitatively different than anti-Semitism's uh, previously, that they are being murdered. And she says this. And nevertheless, she puts even in this short memo, this protest that she publishes pseudonymously, um, that she still objects to the Jews as as inhabitants of the Polish space, um, and that she has in no way bracketed or changed any of those objections. So yes, in every sense, she is she's a cultural anti-Semite. She's a political anti-Semite. Um, but I don't think that she is a racial anti-Semite in the Nazi genocidal sense. And that might sound like splitting hairs. And in some senses, it is splitting hairs. But I think if we're talking about observers of the unfolding Holocaust, then we need to split those hairs because we need to understand how Polish anti-Semitism changes during the Holocaust. And we need to understand how it's weaponized. And therefore, we, we can't just take it as a monolith. I think it's very important to make those distinctions as well. Uh, and, you know, I, I, in that sense, basically, if I, if I understood correctly what you were saying, it seems like there is, I mean, with the exception of the far right historians, most people have a point when they're analyzing the, what, what, what Kosak is writing, maybe even some of the far right historians in the sense that, yes, she was an anti-Semite, but also within the parameters that actually require very fine-grained distinctions. And in that sense, you know, I, I think what one 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 of the things that I uh, I was thinking about while you were answering the question was just how many and how varied the historiographical contributions are that you're making with this book. So I'm going to step back for a second and ask you, uh, what were the main two or three that you wanted? to make uh, in terms of entering, I mean, I, I know you consider yourself a historian of warfare, uh, among other things, but if you're thinking about resistance in occupied Poland, the historiography is huge. I've always been partial to aforementioned PhD advisor Gross's first book, uh, Polish Society Under German Occupation, but that book is now over 40 years old. Uh, which books, I mean, actually, let me, let me put it this way. Are the old books still very helpful? Uh, what was it that you really felt you wanted to achieve by in 2022 publishing uh, uh, a book that would enter into this historiography too? 
Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a sort of a million dollar question here because I always find myself caught between two stools. Sometimes I'll, I'll find a way to explain a point or, or pitch something I, I've been thinking about for a while. And to a Polish audience, the response is, well, yeah, we, we knew that. And my thought is, yes, but it hasn't been integrated into Western, into Western conversations, but it's a fair point. And the other tension there is, do I then privilege information that I believe is totally new and run the risk of fetishizing the obscure over considering cases like, say, Jan Karski, as you mentioned before, who's who's very well known increasingly. So I will say here as a caveat, and I, I think I say this in the introduction of my book, um, Jan Gross's his book might be two generations old now in scholarly terms. What is that? Five generations? How long is a scholarly generation? It's not 30 years. It's 20 minutes or something. Okay. Um, I think this book has a remarkable durability. I think it holds up well. And I'm not someone who says, oh, new books are better books. No, new books are new books uh, and better books are better books. Um, and I think that Gross's take, sociological take on um, how the Germans tried to run the general government, I don't think that anyone's ever going to overturn that and say, no, 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 that's not how it worked. And I rely on it very much. And, and I say that one of the things I'm looking at is how did that framework that he establishes how does it work for the Warsaw intelligentsia who have uniquely privileged agency and who are besides the Polish Jewish community also targeted deliberately? So they have have their desire to response and to resist what, what Nazi Germany is doing is, is overdetermined in, in multiple ways. So one of the things I wanted to do is, is first of all, I wanted to focus in on the city of Warsaw um, because Warsaw is not representative of Polish experience during the war. It's, it's intense. It has a, a very different timeline of what happens from, from the opening siege to the ending uprising. It's not simply Poland in microcosm. So a work like Gross's has the disadvantage that it considers all of the general government. And there's actually huge variety across the general government. So I took some of his, his main ideas and arguments. I focused in on the Warsaw space. And I thought the reason for doing this, this now, besides my, my own personal interest, is that there is a building literature, I'm thinking of Mark Mazower's book on, on Hitler's empire, um, uh, of a wider purview of within the Second World War, what it actually meant to occupy the space of Eastern Europe, how broad Nazi ideology was in trying to reshape that region demographically. And I thought that what happened in Poland needed to be reintegrated into that story. Because I think Polish history has a deep sense of, of tension, even into the present, that it's so complicated that it often becomes so detailed that readers outside of Poland who are not themselves connected with this historiography can, can easily become disoriented. And yet how it's portrayed in large scale works on the war, even where it's easy to forget sometimes in, in big one volume histories of the Second World War that the war began in Poland uh, because of how it's incorporated. So it's it's caricatured, it's oversimplified in Western literatures. And I think sometimes it's overcomplicated among Polish scholars. So I was I was trying to to hit a sort of a median point where I tried to give some of the, the complexity of Polish history in this new container of of Nazi empire, considering the recent work we've had in the past generation on, on the Holocaust, and therefore to give it a potentially larger, larger audience who might be considering some of those larger questions about war and genocide and nationalism without necessarily um, uh, already being informed uh, of Polish history. 
Well, would it be fair to say that that might be a reason for giving less space to the Warsaw Uprising than one would see elsewhere? Because actually, I will say that's probably the one thing that surprised me the most when I was reading your book. And then I thought, okay, that fits for me in terms of her overall approach. Uh, It's 10 pages in a book that's almost 400 pages. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, like most of the sections of the book, the section on the 1944 uprising, and I'll clarify here for, for those of your, your listeners who there, Warsaw has multiple uprisings and the easiest count is that it has two, though I think it's better to say it has at least three. There are two uprisings in the ghetto in 1943 and the spring uprising in the ghetto, the Warsaw ghetto uprising is the first. And then the late summer, 1944, um, Povstania, the uprising of the whole city is, is, well, the second or the third, depending on how you count. Um, and um, this is, is kind of a topic of its own. And it has to be the end, the last chapter in a book about the Warsaw Intelligentsia. And it is in my book. I don't, I, I don't try to fight that. But I think it has to be the last chapter, but it should not be the whole story for, for two reasons. Uh, and the first is more important. The first is that this is not the main thing that the Warsaw Intelligentsia does, and it is not necessarily the main thing that happens to them. They begin to respond to Nazi occupation in 1939, and most of their responses are deliberately muted in their violence because of the fear of reprisals. And therefore, most of the things they accomplished during the war are not this kind of paramilitary uprising. And to use paramilitary uprising as a shorthand for resistance as a whole obscures this extraordinary creativity and flowering of efforts, including by figures who may not have been pacifists, but were opposed to violent uprising. Um, And and I think that shorthand of of using the the Warsaw Uprising um, as a kind of a marker of resistance as a whole is is misleading. And the other reason, um, which is, is practical and um, also important here is that the Warsaw Uprising may have been led and provoked by some figures in the Warsaw Intelligentsia who turned to and began to form the major underground paramilitaries, the largest of which is, is the Home Army. Um, but it also involves the whole city. So it's it's a story that's not just about the Intelligentsia, though they have a key leadership role. So my book is framed by these two events of extraordinary violence in which the Intelligentsia have particular experiences, but which are beyond them, beyond their leadership, um, beyond their, their in, in some ways, beyond their comprehension for most of them. And the first one is the 1939 siege when the Wehrmacht surrounds and attacks Warsaw. Yes, this is a baptism of fire for the Warsaw intelligentsia, but it's also a kind of a social melting pot, right? The intelligentsia rub shoulders with people they probably didn't interact with substantially before the war. And the uprising in 1944 also has that quality where intellectuals and journalists and underground activists of various sorts are thrown into this disgusting insurgency and then the police campaign that that represses it um, in ways that put them back into contact with with non-intelligentsia figures, with, with normal Varsovians, if you will. And so both of those needed a place in this story, but I didn't want them to allow either of those episodes of violence to completely take over the story, which would give the misleading impression that the Warsaw intelligentsia pursued a policy of violence or that that was the most important uh, thing that they did during the war. If I may, the, the, the one sort of bit of the story that I think uh, we probably should underscore, of course, you mentioned the end point. And if we think back, uh, 
encourage our, our, our listeners to think back to where the conversation started about the origins of the intelligentsia, about the projects that they'd undertaken, about their commitments to Polish sovereignty. Uh, survivors, but there is a clear undertone of failure here. Uh, and at the same time, there are... Uh, there are legacies of memory. I, 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 I could go on talking for a sec for, for a bit about this, but given that we all know that communist rule followed uh, World War II and followed the end of the German occupation of Warsaw, how do we think about the projects of the intelligentsia that really form the heart of your story? How do we think about what survived? Because, of course, there were Warsaw Uprising participants, some from the intelligentsia, some not, who did fine in communist Poland, even in Stalinist Poland. Uh, And there were others who were just fighting it tooth and nail. Is there a way to pull all this together coherently, or is that really a different story? Yeah. So the question is, is where does this story, this story I frame in the, in the book, where does it end? Um, and there are a lot of arguments for different end points. When, when I first thought through this project in its, in its dissertation phase, I basically ended with the end of, of 1940 and beginning of 1941 when the anti-intelligentsia actions ended. Right? So I didn't look at the consequences. I looked at those sort of initial Nazi German persecutions against, against the Warsaw intelligentsia. So that's in some sense the end of one story and then the beginning of another, which is the response of, of the intelligentsia itself. So where does that story end? And arguably you could say with the end of the lives or with the end of the visions of, of the, the various uh, protagonists of the book. In other words, it, it, the, one of the arguments is this is a story that is ongoing. Okay, um, but that's that's I think not helpful in terms of, of framing a narrative. So one of the the obvious things I could have done is take this into the early years of, of people's Poland of the post war period. Um, what happens to these people when they transition from Nazi German occupation to Stalinist domination, Soviet liberation, depending on what you what you want to call it? And in a narrative sense, that interests me a great deal. Is how do you move from frying pan into the fire for some of these figures, or from you know horror into to salvation for, for others of these, these figures. Um, but in another way, I wanted to remind myself that, that my subject was this intelligentsia under Nazi German occupation. And I thought that the Nazi German ideology and its manifestations um, and its contradictions really mattered. And how the Warsaw intelligentsia understood this as an existential threat to the Polish national th- project, to Polish state project, to future Polish sovereignty, I thought that particular interaction really mattered. And by adding a Soviet coda to the end of the story, I thought that distracted from this this particular interaction here, which is, which is not to say that there aren't good arguments for, for going into that. Um, but since, since the subject wasn't the Polish Second Republic, it wasn't the Polish people as, as a whole, it was this, this particular interaction of Nazi occupation, I ended with the end of the occupation, which won't, which won't satisfy everyone. I do, in, in the conclusion, try to explain where these people ended up um, after after the war a bit to sort of give give a sense of closure there. Um, there is a follow-on story, which is not exactly my story, of the Polish communist intelligentsia, which 
has some continuous figures, but in other ways is is a new group that is raised in a new environment. Is this a part of a longer history of, of, of Polish intelligentsia? Yedlitsky would probably be a better person to weigh in on that than, than, than uh, I can. Unfortunately, we, we don't have him anymore. Um, but uh, I wanted to consider this as, as this particular kind of a particular way that Nazi Germany threatened and understood the Polish national project through this intelligentsia and therefore how they responded. And therefore, for me, it made sense to end with the end of that occupation, therefore loosely with the end of the Second World War. That's also the reason that I stayed with with Warsaw. I thought that there's a kind of a story here of, of that interaction, even if there are other stories, right? There are biographical stories of the transition between Nazi occupation and Soviet domination, like the story of Witold Pilecki, the story of, of Czesław Miłosz and how he, he understands himself. And clearly some of those are, are very important uh, continuously. And then there are other Polish stories. What happens in Western Poland? What happens in Kraków? What happens in the Kresy? But I would say that those are, in fact, distinct stories. We're coming to a close. Uh, let me just ask, what are you working on now? Um, well, I think we're, we're sort of the lingering uh, effects of, of COVID. So I haven't really uh, been able to dive into archival research yet. But my second project is currently conceived is I'm going to try to interrogate um, what is called sometimes the Himmlerstadt or Pflugstadt, this experiment around around the city of, of Zamost during the Second World War, where uh, the SS attempts to plant a ethnic German settler colony. And my goal for the project is to give it from the bottom up to incorporate Polish and Ukrainian and Jewish uh, and ethnic German perspectives to tell the story of the agency of those people who were the subjects of this this particularly grotesque experiment. So I've, I've started work on that. Um, and when I get to the Polish archives, maybe, maybe this summer, maybe not until next one, I'm going to see how feasible that is to construct that way. But that's that's the ambition right now. Sounds like a wonderful project. Uh, thank you. Uh, Jadwiga Biskupska has been our guest today. Uh, she is Assistant Professor of History at Sam Houston State University, and she has published a wonderful book with Cambridge University Press, Survivors, Warsaw Under Nazi Occupation, just out uh, with Cambridge. So please, if you've heard us today, go buy the book, read the book. It's absolutely worth it. Uh, thank you once again, Jadwika. Thank you. This was this was great fun to get to talk about the book. Have a great evening. You too. <laughs>